All right, let's take our Bibles this morning, go to Hebrews chapter 2, and leave your Bibles open as usual, because we're going to be looking at several things in the Scriptures this morning. And our theme for this year is Fight On, and uh, sometimes that's easy, sometimes it's not, but that's our theme. Our series that we're going through right now is to fight for others, and I want to bring a message this morning that I hope will be an encouragement and a strengthening to all of us here this morning on the Lord Jesus Christ who was made lower for others. Uh, William Stubbs, who was the bishop at Oxford University, once uh, had a young preacher come to him and ask for some advice on preaching. And he said this, he said, preach about God and preach about 20 minutes. This morning, we'll preach about God. Uh, we, we know God as the Father, um, and uh, we know Christ as the Son, and of course, that's just a simplistic way of articulating eternal truth. Uh, but uh, uh, this morning, I want us to look at Christ um, as the Son of God, the creator God that became man. And uh, some, in some eternal way, there is that relationship between Christ, the Son, and God the Father. And uh, we know that fathers and sons have peculiar relationships sometimes. Sons are always trying to, uh, hopefully, I, I think our society is trying to destroy this, but, uh, but uh, I think a natural uh, thing is for a son to always want to think well of his dad and to uh, think that his dad is the greatest and the best, and uh, reminds me of an army brat, as a boy that was uh, whose father was in the army, and a boy whose father was in the navy, and they were going back and forth about whose dad was the greatest. And the army brat said, "You know, my dad is an engineer." And the navy kid said, "Well, so what?" And he said, "Well, have you heard of the Alps, the Swiss Alps?" And the navy kid said, "Yeah, I've heard of them." And the army uh, boy said, "Well, my dad built them." And the Navy said, that's nothing. Have you heard of the Dead Sea? And the Army, guy said, the Army kid said, yeah, I've heard of that. He says, it was my dad that killed it. <laughs> my favorite one, though, is three boys arguing about whose dad was the, the best. And the first boy says, my dad is a cowboy. And he's so fast that he can shoot an arrow against a target and run and catch the arrow before it hits the target. The next boy said, that's nothing. My dad is so fast, he's a policeman. He can shoot his gun against a wall, run, beat the bullet, and catch it with his bare hands. And the third guy said, that is nothing. My dad is so fast, he works for the government. And he gets home every day at 3.45, even though he doesn't get off work until 5 p.m. Now, if there ever was a son that could brag about his father and a father that could brag about his son, I think we'd agree it would be the Lord Jesus Christ and his heavenly father. And uh, the book of Hebrews here has got some things in it that uh, we, we struggle with sometimes, we wrestle with sometimes. The truths often are pretty simple to understand, are simple to believe, but hard to understand. And in Hebrews chapter 2, I want us to start reading in verse number 9, where the Bible says this, but we see Jesus. And my goal this morning really is nothing more complicated than that. 
for us to see Jesus. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. Now, we know who the Lord Jesus Christ is this morning, and uh, we're going to reiterate that. Um, but there's some things here that, uh, that speak specifically to his humanity, specifically to the fact that he became a man. First of all, in verse number 10, the Bible says, for it became him. In other words, if you look at time, which is a construct of this creation. God doesn't live within time necessarily. But as he created time, about Jesus, it's true that there was some time when he was not something that he became. Now I understand, and we're going to get to in a second, how uncomfortable that truth makes us. But I want us to embrace uh, some Bible truth this morning that I think can help us to do what the goal here is to see Jesus. And then the end of verse number 10, if that wasn't enough to disturb us, maybe, the Bible says that he became perfect. Became perfect through sufferings. He became, or he was, that God made him perfect through sufferings. And this morning, I want us to just have a very simple thought, and that is, that the Lord Jesus Christ, who we're going to see here in a moment, was the God of creation, became lower for the benefit of others. And our theme this month is to fight for others. And the application, I'll just tell you right at the beginning, is very simple, that if God could become lower for others, then perhaps we can do the same. Amen. Uh, it's a simple truth. It's aspirational in the aspect of none of us, I think, would say that we've achieved that. But that is the goal. I want you to take your Bible quickly and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, please, if you would. I want to just read a familiar verse that gives us uh, another uh, ray of light on this. And the concept is this, is that Christ became, we're to see him, and as his children as his sons, we also are called to become something that we're not. Second Corinthians chapter 8, look at verse number 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember in Hebrews chapter 2, grace is connected there to the fact that Christ died and tasted death for all men. So with that connection there, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and that's quite an understatement, Yet for your sakes, and here's that word again, became, he became poor, 
that ye through his poverty might be rich. And you say, well, wait a minute here. It sounds like you're saying that Jesus changed over time. And the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus did change over time. The man, Christ Jesus. So we embrace two truths. Uh, go to John chapter 1, if you would, please. The first truth is this. And this is the truth that we as Bible-believing Christians tend to assert first, and, and it's imperative. And the truth is this, is that the Jesus Christ that was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago uh, was unlike any other human being ever to have been born. He was born without a human father. He was conceived in his mother's womb of the Holy Spirit. And he in very nature was the God of creation. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse number 14 we're told, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That Word is the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the man that was born in that manger 2,000 years ago, that baby that came into the earth, is the same baby that in John chapter 1 and verse 3, the Bible tells us, created all things. He was before all things. He was the God of creation, the God of righteousness, the God that the Bible says doesn't change. And because of that, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 6, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ didn't consider equality, uh, didn't consider it to be robbery, to be equal with God. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16 says about Jesus Christ that he was God manifest in the flesh. And it's so important for us to stand for the person of Jesus Christ being the fact that he was the eternal infinite God in a human body that if you don't believe that, if you don't accept that Jesus Christ is the God of creation in a human body, you cannot be redeemed. You cannot be saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. So really the first thing that somebody has to confront and believe and accept about Jesus Christ is that he was unique and that his uniqueness was derived from his paternity and his paternity was derived from God the Father and because of that he was the Word of God. And the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that when God created the universe he used his word. He spoke. Let there be light and so on and so forth. And so while we contend for, we stand up for, we fight for the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the infinite eternal God coming to this world as the vicarious atoning savior, this morning I want us to consider his humanity. Something we can, under, we can accept, but we are gonna to struggle to understand exactly how those two things coexisted. And in looking at his humanity, my hope this morning is that we can be moved to do what he did. And despite everything I just said about him being the immutable, unchangeable God, that he became. I want to tell you this morning, I have not become what God intends for me to become. 
I don't mean this meanly this morning, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that none of us here this morning have become what God intends for us to become. The process by which Jesus Christ became, according to the book of Hebrews, was that he was made lower. He was made lower. And I think there's something that you and I can learn from that. Uh, go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you would please, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, here we're going to celebrate the holiday season. And I know that that's a controversial concept. I am not a big fan of the word Christmas because of my Roman Catholic upbringing. Um, and some people think that uh, you're a spiritual giant if you use, say, Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. Eat Chick-fil-A and, you know, buy your Christmas tree from one department store versus another. Um, I'm not, I'm not likely to get all excited about those things. I think they're kind of silly and diversions. Amen. Uh, but the reason, I think, hopefully, uh, still to some degree that we have a holiday season is to commemorate the truth that God came to this world. Amen. And that there was no events that ever happened on this world that's more important than that. First Timothy chapter 2, look at verse number 5. The Bible says this, For there is one God, but the Bible says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. Now I want you to notice what it says here. The man, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. Now we understand that if he wasn't God, his death could not be atoning and couldn't be the acceptable payment for the sins of other people because if he wasn't God, he would be like us, sinners. And he would be guilty of sin. The wages of sin is death. And his death would have at the very best been an inspirational story that's been passed down through the generations in order to motivate and inspire and warm the hearts of men. But we know that that's not what his death was about. We know his death in a very technical sense was a legal payment that he made out of love to deposit righteousness in the place of our sin. So we understand that, that he as a mediator came to bring us into relationship with the holy God. Now that said, the mediatorship, the office of mediatorship that Christ possessed was not possessed by his deity, but by his humanity. There's all kinds of questions the Bible doesn't answer for us, that people try to conjure up an answer, and sometimes they, they fight about it. Could Jesus have sinned? I don't know, but I know that he didn't. But because he was a man, because he became a man, and he was, in essence, the creator of God. He's the only man who was able to bridge the gap. Because of his holiness, he was able to take God the Father in one hand. Because of his humanity, he was able to take you and I in his other hand and be the mediator between us and God. And because of that, look at verse number 6. Who gave himself, the man Christ Jesus, gave himself a ransom for all, that's the end of Calvinism right there in two words, okay? To be testified in due time. To be testified in due time. 
Today it's a due time to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Psalm 85. I want to show you one more thing here that's uh, relevant to the idea of him being a man, the man Christ Jesus. And then I want us to have three simple applications from this that we can take forward, hopefully in a practical sense. Psalm 85 and verse number 9. The Bible says this, Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Now look at verse number 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Now this is an oversimplification, but I want us to understand this. In his deity, in his righteousness, in his holiness, he's truth. He can't compromise his truth. He's truth without any error. But I wonder if it's okay for us to say that in his humanity, in his ability to empathize with us, in the fact that the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that because he became a man, he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That in all points he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That I wonder if his humanity is the expression of his mercy. And then the Bible says this, Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I wonder again if His righteousness is a picture of His deity, and peace is a picture of His humanity. But in the person of Jesus Christ, righteousness and peace have kissed. They've become unified. Absent the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and I don't want to get into deeper theology this morning, but... Uh, but the reason why people who died, even in, with a good report before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reason why they didn't go to heaven for us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Is because righteousness and peace hadn't kissed yet. Because mercy and truth hadn't met yet. We live today grateful for the one who made that true for us. Amen. And take your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 4. I want to give us just three simple things about the Lord Jesus Christ who was made lower. He's made lower for others. Made lower for others. Matthew chapter 4, if you would please. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. The Bible says this. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you. Jesus became. And... After he had become, he said, follow me and I will make you. The first thing I want us to remember about the man Christ Jesus is that as a man, he was a leader. As a man, he was a leader. And if you are his son this morning, now that's the biblical title. Um, I'm not trying to be chauvinistic, but I seem to succeed at that often. Um, but the, the reality is, is that if you're God's son by birth through the new birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He has called you to be a leader. He's called you to be a leader. Somebody that can tell other people, follow me and I will make you. Follow me and I will make you. He's called us to be leaders, not in position only. You don't need a title. You don't need a position. You don't need a lever of power to pull. But by the very definition that we are his children, we are his sons. We are the stewards of a great and awesome responsibility. The responsibility to be salt in a world that needs saltiness. To be light in a world that's dark. To be truth in a world of lies. Now, if you look at Jesus Christ as a leader, I think you'll see some very important things that we need to appropriate ourselves as well. The man Christ Jesus was a leader of courage. He stood up against the devil and said, it is written. He stood up against the religious leaders of his day, and when it was appropriate, he said that they were like whited sepulchers. He called them vipers. He exposed not only their bad teaching, but also their corrupt motives. He stood up against the societal and social pressures of his day to be a beacon of truth. He even stood in courage when it cost him dearly. During those bloody days between 1940 or so and 1945, names like Hitler and Himmler and Goering struck terror in the hearts of billions around the world. But in the context of that terror and horror, history has preserved the names of some men who were men of courage. Dr. Felix Kirsten is known to have rescued thousands of people from the sure death of the hands of the Nazi regime. Dr. Kirsten was the personal physician to Heinrich Himmler. And in that position, he had an amazing powers over Germany's number two man, and he used his influence to keep many from becoming victims of the killers that led Germany. Week in and week out, Kirsten snatched Himmler's victims from concentration camps and gas chambers. The World Jewish Council credits him with saving 60,000 of their people. And the number of Dutch, Poles, Finns, and Norwegians he saved is difficult to estimate. He was a quiet man, but his influence changed the course of history for many, and perhaps the whole world. Why? Very simple. He's a man of courage. A man that saw a need greater than his own self-interest and was willing to risk his own self-interest to do something that he believed in. And God has called you and God has called me to be leaders of courage. When you look at the Lord Jesus Christ as a leader man, the man Christ Jesus as a leader, we see somebody who not only was a leader of courage, we see somebody who was a leader of conviction. Somebody that couldn't be swayed by the short-term gain that appeared to be his for the asking. 
After he fed 5,000 men and their families, he attracted a huge following. One of the greatest ways for any politician to gain a following is to promise a chicken in every pot, every belly to be filled. Now, men have to steal from other men to try to make that promise true. And somehow that transition never seems to actually go to the people that it's promised to, but ends up in the pockets of the politicians who have promised it to them and made people dependent. But I'm not going to get off on that this morning. Lord Jesus Christ had showed that he could take one boy's lunch and multiply it and feed the multitudes. And he had a huge following, people that were willing to follow him seemingly anywhere, but he knew their motives. He understood that the reason that they followed him wasn't because of the truth that he represented, but because of the stuff that he could give them. And if you've ever read John chapter 6 and scratched your head and wondered, why was the Lord so harsh even on those people when he turned to them and he challenged them and told them, hey, look, if you're going to follow me, it's not about getting food. If you're going to follow me, it's about following the truth. And I want you to understand before you take another step on this road, I want you to understand how narrow the truth is. So instead of listening to the pragmatic voices that, hey, you've got a huge following, here's your time to make an impact, consolidate your gains, reinforce and affirm those people that are behind you, and then use them to achieve your aims, he looked at them as a leader of conviction and said, I want you to understand what this means if you follow me. The Bible tells us that almost all of them went away. And then he looked at his disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? Only a leader of conviction would put principle over the pragmatic application of what has happened or what could happen. When it was popular, he stood on principle. When it was unpopular, Christ stood for principle. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 if you would, please. We are to be leaders of conviction. Can I remind you that being a leader of conviction doesn't necessarily uh, mean uh, that you have to have a certain temperament. You don't have to be mean and loud and nasty to everybody. Conviction means you're not going to get moved. And in my personal experience, some of the men that had the actual greatest deal of conviction as leaders were the ones that were the quietest about it. Sometimes those men that go about proclaiming how bold and strong and tough and everything they are, find, you find out that, well, that the reality doesn't meet the marketing. Christ didn't have to run around telling everybody how strong he was and how much conviction he had. He just lived on conviction. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge thee, therefore, the Bible says, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his coming, his appearing, I'm sorry, in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They shall be turned away from the truth and turned into fables. You say, hey, this is the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling a pastor of a local church, 
How to preach the word, what does it have to do with me? Well, the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So you say, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a preacher. Well, let me ask you the question, what is the application of this verse to you? I'll tell you the application is exactly the same as it is for a preacher. Now, while I might have the peculiar duty to open the word of God and to preach uh, to, the, to, to the people of God, you have an obligation as a child of God, as a son of God, to open the Bible and to do the same thing to the people in your life. You may not need three points in an outline and a poem, but you know what you're to do? You're to preach the word of God and to be a conduit of truth when it's in season. And thank God for those times. Thank God for those times when you can stand for truth and have people say amen and applaud and say I'm behind you and I'm with you. Thank God for those times. Amen. But we're also to be people of conviction when it's out of season. When you stand for truth, when you have love motivating you in your heart, and people look at you and they call you hateful. When people see you and they see you as evil when you're trying to do good. When it's out of season and out of time and it's doing right, it sounds like to the world metal on metal breaks squeaking at each other that nobody wants to hear. When it sounds like nails on a chalkboard and it's out of season, we're still to preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. So how do I do that? Only by an abiding conviction in the truth of the word of God can we do that. And this is more than obvious, but take your Bible, go to John chapter 7, if you would, please. Lord Jesus Christ was a leader of consequence. Many, many people have taken pen to paper and have very eloquently tried to summarize or tried to articulate the consequence of the life of Jesus of Nazareth throughout the annals of history. But suffice it to say that whether it's Buddha or Confucius, Mohammed, any of the popes, any great political or scientific or moral leader that's ever come throughout history, no man can touch the impact, the consequence of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. I wonder, I wonder if the same, not, not specifically, but the same principle can be said about you and I. If we were to live, I'm sorry, if we were to die today, would we have left a mark for truth? Would we have left a consequence? Christ is the most consequential man that ever lived, and he's called us to make a difference. Look at John chapter 7 and verse 45, if you would, please. Now these guys were sent out to arrest him, and here's what happened. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. The words that Jesus Christ spoke were unprecedented, but I want you to understand and read what they said. Like this man. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 26, the Bible says, And he saith unto them, Why are you fearful, ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? 
The man Christ Jesus came to this world, he became something. One of those things was he became a leader, a leader of courage, a leader of conviction, a leader of consequence. And I believe that God's will for his children is for us to be the same. Take your Bible and go to John chapter 17. But not only was Jesus Christ a leader man, one of the other things that he did better than anybody else that he's called us to do is to be a lover man. To be a lover man. In John chapter 17, Christ demonstrated his love in his prayer to the Father. In verse number 20, John 17, 20, Christ said this, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. As a loving leader, Christ prayed, even though he was God in a human body. He prayed for our obedience. He prayed for our joy. He prayed for our protection. He prayed for our sanctification. Amen. It's been asked before, what would you think of a man who had a million dollars in the bank and only drew a penny out every day? And often that's you and me when we fail to pray. The throne of grace is established, and there we are to get all the grace we need. Sin is not as strong as the arm of God. How much the more shall we go to God for grace for ourselves and for others? Christ demonstrated his love through prayer. Take your Bible, go to 1 John chapter 4, if you would, please. Christ demonstrated his love for, by his propitiation. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. It's been said before that we can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. First John chapter 4, look at verse number 10, please. The Bible says this, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He gave Himself for the benefit of others. History has been increasingly less kind to the man known as Alexander the Great, and maybe there's merit to that, I don't know. I didn't know him, despite what some of you might think. And um, one of the records, of course this could be apocryphal, we don't know this for sure, but one of the records of his great leadership is that as he was leading his army across the Baluchistan Desert, there was no water to be found. In fact, he sent scouts out and they scrounged up all of the water they could find for the entire army and it fit within one Macedonian helmet. And being faithful soldiers, they took that helmet of water and they presented it to their leader, to Alexander, who understanding the situation, understanding the desperate need that his army was in, took that water and in the sight of all of his soldiers, he 
poured it out on the ground, refusing to drink even a drop of it. The record says that the men in the army that saw that and those that heard of it were so hardened that it seemed like every man had drunk that helmet of water. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But not only that, he didn't leave us alone. He's left us and kept us protected. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hands. If we follow that thread of that first concept of Christ as a leader, a leader of courage and of conviction and of consequence, we sometimes can think he's going to put us in a situation of peril. But the reality is, is that if you're his son, he's got you in his hands. And the Father has his hand over that. And all of the peril and danger that we see really is just temporal. Because Christ, through his love, has protected each and every one of his children. Now, take your Bible, go to 1 John chapter 2. And there's one other thing I want us to see this morning before we depart together. And that is that all of us are engaged or have been engaged in a great legal proceedings. And the problem that we have in our legal proceedings is that we are guilty. We know we're guilty. The evidence is undeniable. And in our case, the judge is not only the judge who's to arbitrate right and wrong, guilt and innocence. The judge is the one that we offended. The judge is the one that we transgressed against. It's one thing to try to make your case before an impartial jurist who is going to make the, the determination based on an objective view of the law of whether we have transgressed the law or whether we have not transgressed the law. But imagine appearing <coughs> before a judge whose house you burned down when he saw you do it whose family that you murdered and he saw you do it. That's the situation that we're all in. Now, if you were in a bad situation, if you were in illegal proceedings and you have any sense at all, then you're probably going to try to get the best lawyer you can find. And we know that in the human sense that maybe a really good lawyer can get somebody who's guilty off. But we know the judge that we're going to stand before is the judge of truth and the judge of righteousness that we saw earlier in Psalm 85. So we're going to need a really good lawyer. And I'm glad that the man Christ Jesus, one of the things he became, was he became the universe's best lawyer. Look at 1 John chapter 2, please, in verse number 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. 
And if any man sin, we have an advocate. It's another word for a lawyer. With the Father, Christ, I'm sorry, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now notice what it says here about what we just talked about. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now the context of 1 John chapter 2, by the way, is written to born-again Christians. How do we know that? My little children. If you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, you've never been born again, you are not, despite what some people would say, you are not the child of God. According to John chapter 8, in fact, you are the child of the devil. You're not part of the family of God. You're not part of the covenant of God. But the good news is that if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you've never been born again, that today you can receive His salvation by receiving the payment that He made for your sins. And you can become one of the children, one of the sons of God. And this promise will be true for you today and for all eternity. If you are the child of God, I want you to remember this morning that we have an advocate. We have a lawyer. We have a counselor with the Father, the judge, Christ, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I want you to remember that the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, He defended you. He didn't have to try to get you to try on a glove that may or may not have been one that you used to murder somebody else. He didn't have to try to pervert or corrupt truth and righteousness. He didn't have to deny or to or impugn the law or the lawgiver or the judge. He defended you, not on your merits, but on his merits. He defended you by going in front of that judge and displaying the wounds that he received when he died for the things for which you are guilty. He reminded the judge, if you will, that the wrath and the judgment and the punishment that you as his client so richly deserved that he had already paid for it. He reminded the judge of that day on Calvary when he said those three words, it is finished. And he defended truth and expressed mercy at the same time. And when he did that, he defeated the prosecution's attorney. Now we know that our salvation is actually already done. There's not going to be a court case for us. If you're born again child of God, you're not going to stand at the great white throne judgment. You will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and that's a truth and a different message. Uh, but if you play out the scene as we would comprehend it, imagine being the defendant sitting there listening to the prosecution list out all the evidence about you. The truth of the matter is, is that all of us probably have somebody in this house this morning that knows us well enough 
that if we were tasked with giving the case against your righteousness, it would be very easy to do that. It would be very compelling. It would be conclusive. Now add to that the fact that the devil somehow knows and has remembered everything we've ever done. Now, I don't know about you, but I wonder if there's something that comes to your mind when you're reminded that God and the devil may know everything you've ever, well, God does know everything you've ever done. And there are things that you've spent your life trying to run away from. There are truths about yourself that you cannot confront. You cannot accept, but they're true nonetheless. And to hear in excruciating and painful detail those truths openly expounded before the entire jury and courtroom, and you sit there and listen to that. You say, it's going to take a miracle. But I want to remind you that's exactly what your attorney did for you. He defeated all of the truth against you with his death. On your behalf, he defeated death. On your behalf, he defeated the grave. And he gives us the opportunity, an opportunity that all of us fail at sometimes, to live in victory over Satan, to live in victory over the prosecuting attorney, to live in victory over sin, to live in victory over the world, to live in victory even over our own feeble flesh. And you say, what does this have to do with me? Well, I believe that the man Christ Jesus, who was our attorney that defended us and defeated our enemies on our behalf, would have us to look at others that also need an advocate. and to be their advocates as well. Very simply this morning, the Bible tells us there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who became, who was made perfect, who was made lower than the angels, so that we might become. What might we become? We might become men and women, that are leaders, men and women that are lovers, and men and women that are in the best sense of the word, lawyers. The Duke of Wellington and Napoleon Bonaparte were born the same year, 1769. Both of them were born on an island and both of them became fatherless in their early boyhood. Both of them had four brothers and both of them had three sisters. They each attended military academy in France at the same time. Both of them became lieutenant colonels in their respective armies within one day of each other. Both were excellent at mathematics, both were great soldiers, and both commanded great armies. And both remembered what happened at Waterloo. One was the victor and one was the vanquished. You and I have the same God, the same Father, the same Bible, the same Spirit, the same commands, the same enablements, 
as the Christian next to you, as those that have gone on before us. And the question is this. Will we be victorious or will we be vanquished? There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who became that we might become. Father, we thank you for these truths. We pray that you bless this time of invitation. In